What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another playoff edition of Bucking the Trend podcast. I'm Andrew Goodman, co-hosting as always with Dylan Piccolo. Dylan, we were asking for adjustments in game two. It looks like Coach Boonholzer and the Bucks came through in a 123-102 victory. What adjustments did you see in game two that you liked? Uh, I think we'll start with the starting lineup change. I think Miritich um, kind of getting in that starting lineup actually worked. Um, maybe it was a little bit uh surprise for Boston to expect that. Um, so that was good. Obviously, the switching, um, you know, especially that took place in the third quarter was – you know, pretty much solved kind of the issues that you had. Obviously, Al Horford's going to hit a few threes and Kyrie's going to do his, on you know, his own business on the pick and roll. But the Celtics came back to earth as well in terms of shooting, uh, 39% from the field and 35% from three. Um, so that, you know, always helps as they came down from 54 and I think 41 in games one, uh, in game one. So just kind of an overall better effort and the switching was the big thing for me. Yeah. The switching thing. I just want to feed off that before we touch on Chris Middleton's performances. I thought Urson, when he was in the game, he did a great job at defending, defending Boston, the perimeter. And whenever he was in the game, Boston's offense was sort of stagnant and out of sorts. So I thought Urson was huge off the bench in 18 minutes plus 21. But speaking of big, how big was Chris Middleton? I mean, 28 points plus 25, 10 of 18 from the field, seven to 10 from deep. He's, just, I don't know what it is against Boston, but he turns into Michael Jordan, I got to say. You know, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do anything because I just want it to continue to happen. Anytime you can get seven threes out of a guy, uh, it, it's huge. And Chris Middleton was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, he took advantage of what the Celtics were doing. They were really pinching in on Giannis and on often in transition. He would just kind of slide into the right spot and he would have an open three. Um, but, you know, and, that, and you kind of see, uh, you know, when Chris Middleton's playing really well, I think it's when the Bucks are playing uh, a little more of a up-tempo game, sort of, you know, how they got out of that in game one. And you kind of look at, all right, he did good, but was his shots, were his shots really the shots that you're, uh, you know, that you want him to get when your offense is running best? So definitely getting him in transition, getting him open threes, you know, led to the 7 to 10 and good defense too. You know, I thought his performance was especially uh, special just because, you know, the Bucks got off to a slow start. It was kind of – it wasn't looking like a game one repeat, but the Bucks came out of the gate slow. Chris Middleton really helped stabilize things, hitting some shot because if you think about it, even though Giannis finished with 29 points on 7-16 to 16 shooting, he didn't really get going until the second half when the Bucks already had, had built the lead. So Chris Middleton's performance there has just magnified how important he is to this Bucks team. Absolutely. Chris Middleton was good. Um, Eric Bledsoe was good. And, you know, Budenholzer and people have said, uh, you know, the team's ceiling is as good as Eric Bledsoe wants to play. Or, And you saw, like we've talked about on the podcast, when Eric Bledsoe can get some easy shots to the rim at first and get himself going before he starts to shoot the three ball, then he can be really, really dangerous. And you saw it with an efficient night, 7-12 from the field, 3-5 from deep. Uh, and four and four from the line for 21 points, you know, Eric Bledsoe getting deep penetration and kind of starting that offense up was another part of it because, you know, the Bucks had talked about it and even Bledsoe called himself out on it, that he was lackadaisical at times pushing the ball up the court. And I think we saw when Bledsoe and, you know, Giannis can get that initial penetration, the natural, you know, cause and effect of it is going to get the Bucks a pretty good shot for a pretty good shooter more times than not. 
Yeah, and especially this season, we've seen it throughout. I just really appreciate how Eric Bledsoe has embraced the leadership role on the team. You know, like you just said or gave that example, how he was taking the blame. That's something you look for. I'll call Eric Bledsoe a veteran. He's been on a few teams, been in different locker rooms. He knows what it takes to win. But on the flip flip side for the Boston Celtics, Jason Tatum, 2 of 10 from the floor, 5 points, finished with a minus 18 I believe he has only nine points in two games for the Boston Celtics. And um, you're kind of starting to see a product of what Kyrie Irving is as the number one player of your team in the playoffs. Uh, he's he's going to command a lot of the time with the ball. Him and Al Horford, especially down the stretch. Brad, That's what Brad Stevens likes to do. And he's going to put his the hands in his best player, and that's Kyrie. And Jason Tatum's kind of a guy where it's like he's a rhythm scorer. I mean a very good rhythm scorer when he's on, he's very, very good. But, uh, you know, when he's not getting the ease to his jumpers and kind of get, you know, assimilated into the offense, when Kyrie has the ball, it leads to problems for them. And kind of, you look at Jason Tatum, obviously, like you said, five, you know, five points, four fouls, like those four fouls, that's, that's a clunky performance. That's, you know, you're not really getting a feel of anything in the game. And he was the low minute man for the starters for the Celtics uh, in game two. So, you know, Brad Stevens is kind of seeing it as well. Gordon Hayward with 30 minutes and uh, off the bench and actually Terry Rozier had more minutes than him as well. Yeah, something that I find interesting was Kyrie Irving's performance yesterday. I thought a lot of shots he got were open, some that he typically makes. But do you attribute his 4 of 18 performance to the Bucks defense, or do you think yesterday was just a tough game all around for pretty much everyone on Boston? It was a tough game, but I, you know, I saw the Bucks really forcing Kyrie Irving to his left, really, really shading him left, and almost giving him the lane, kind of giving the James Harden treatment. Um, but we saw Kyrie, you know, when we talked about on the recap podcast last time, Andrew, we talked about, look at those assist totals for Irving and Horford. And, you know, I think Kyrie had 11 assists. And I said, you know, you're not going to win many games when Kyrie has 11 assists, because that means everyone on the team is scoring. And that means the ball is moving for Boston. And they usually get pretty good shots when that happens. And you look in game two, four assists for Irving. Four assists for Al Horford, so that tell or three assists for Al Horford, so that tells you, all right, the Bucks are letting Kyrie shoot a lot. They're letting Al Horford shoot eighteen and ten shots attempted, respectively, and they're limiting that next pass that they make. So if the Bucks have decided to sell out and live with those two going for it, then maybe that's the style that they have that they need to win against Boston. You know, this series, I've always had respect for Kyrie Irving, the player he is on the floor. But I think in this series, it's only been two games, but I have a newfound respect for how Kyrie Irving plays basketball, especially in game one with some of those pocket passes he was making outside those P&R reads, just the way he drives to the paint and always finds the open man. You know, we saw it also in game two. He made some really nice passes that the shots didn't go down. So Kyrie Irving is just one hell of a player. The pocket pass is definitely his biggest weapon against the Bucks because, you know, if he can deliver a no-look pass behind himself for Horford, I mean, or whoever it is, Morris, I mean, more times than not, it's going to be a relatively open shot. I mean, the Bucks started to figure it out, but even if you look in the first half and even in a little in the second half, 
that's where they're getting a lot of their three-point looks is on that pocket pass off of a pick and roll with Tua fading Horford or Morris. There's just so many things well that Kyrie does on the floor. But going back to the Bucks, you know, we were clamoring after game one for more Tony Snell minutes. Didn't really happen. He only played five. On the other hand, we had Pat Connaughton come back, play 30 minutes. He finished two or four from the field. He had five points, 11 rebounds, did have four fouls, finished plus 15. Do you think this was a big step back? or a big step forward, I mean, for Pat Connaughton from what you saw in game one, or do you think he still had some lapses there? Playing within himself, I think, is really kind of where you saw. I mean, every starter for the Bucks, and that includes Miritich and not Sterling Brown, remind you, um, at, you know, had 10, 10 or more shot attempts, and the, be- the highest bench guy was George Hill with six. So really getting your best players the shots and trying to get him to make it, because, you know, Pat Connaughton took 10 shots last time, and I'm not saying that he can't make those have a big game because we've seen him have big, you know, bigger scoring outbursts. But, uh, you know, I think Pat Connaughton's real bread and butter this series is going to be playing defense, whoever that is that's coming out of the Celtics backcourt. And, you know, even Gordon Hayward at times, um, you know, he didn't show a lot of, uh, you know, ability to guard Hayward in game one. So we saw less of that in game two. But, you know, less shots kind of makes me and more rebounds makes me think, all right, well, Budenholzer probably said, Pat, we need you to just lock everyone down defensively. If you're having an open shot, go ahead. But we just need you to focus on the defensive end of the floor. So, you know, I mean, that's just what I'm thinking has happened. If you're just kind of looking at the stats and kind of the flow of the game and how he played and how hard he played. Um, but, yeah, I think it was big. Yeah, I agree with you on the defensive end. We all know this is a man that has a higher vertical jump than Vince Carter. And obviously, you know, that leads to a lot of good shot contests, some block shots. So definitely saw in game two, Pat Connaughton throwing some Celtics off the rhythm on the jump shot a little bit. But, you know, he did have some lapses. But, you know, I thought he I thought he did his job. And that's what it's about for him, just getting in there and doing what you need to do on a certain night. And that's kind of the beauty of this Bucks bench is that, you know, Miritich comes in and starts, and he can do that if you need him to. Mm-hmm. Sterling Brown could come in and start. Any one of these guys that are getting serious minutes in the playoffs, they can slip in that starting lineup and play out there with starters. So, um, And they can do a lot of different things. Like we said, if Pat needs to defend, he can defend. If he needs to look for his shot, you know, he's not the most consistent at it, but he's able to do it. Same with Ursan. He's able to go out there and get some buckets and hit big shots if you need him to. And likewise with George Hill and Sterling Brown is emerging in that. So just kind of having, like we've been saying all year that this bench is sort of a chameleon and we can kind of make it whatever you need it to be for this opponent. And, you know, Budenholzer started to figure it out what he needs to do uh, against the Celtics, I think. But, you know, that's like a game of chess. Budenholzer is going to make adjustments and now it's Brad Stevens' turn. You know, it is it is sort of a blessing in the curse that the Bucks, even in the postseason, they have the chance to play such an extended role where other teams, they really limit their bench production. But I want to ask you, Boston defensively, the way they've been guarding Giannis so far, especially Al Horford, he's been shown multiple times with his forearm right in Giannis's chest as he's driving to the basket. Do you think, I don't want to say it's a dirty style of defending, but do you think that's something that needs to be called more often throughout the series? I think the amount of fouls that, uh, you know, the amount of free throws that Giannis shot last night were, was appropriate. Uh, you know, 18 free throw attempts, so that's nine times he's getting to the line. Because I don't think he had any and ones. He missed quite a few and ones, actually. Um, it's very odd. Very yeah. un Yeah, he missed a lot of and ones. But, you know, he shot 
you know, 18 free throws. So that's about right. I think they could call more, but you know, I think the narrative of, all right, it's the playoffs and they're not going to call a foul on every possession, even if there is a foul, every possession, it's just, it would ruin the flow of the game. So is it right? No, but is it going to change? I don't think so because, you know, with, with how vocal the, you know, the Rockets and the Warriors have been about the refs and everything, I'm not saying that they don't, that they think about this while they're playing, you know, while they're refing, but you know, no, they don't want to give a guy 48 free throws or, you know, 28 free throws in a game. If they have to, they will, but there hasn't been anything like too excessive in my opinion to kind of warrant that. But, you know, if Giannis keeps making them and he keeps foul- getting fouled, then um, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm interested to see how the whistle is going to be in, uh, you know, TD Garden on Friday. So, you know, a lot a lot of momentum in the buildings one way or the other. So that can kind of sway what a ref does and how he's calling the game, you know. And with the series going back to Boston, obviously one of the more hostile environments in the NBA what adjustments are you expecting, if any, from Boston? We all, all obviously the crowd is going to bring the noise. How confident are you? Granted, the Bucks were one of the best, were actually the best team in the NBA in terms of road record in the regular season. How confident are you with the series tied up one-one going back to Boston? I think we're going to get one. I think we're going to have an opportunity to win both. Um, I think that we will win one and even it up headed into Game Five back in Milwaukee. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, what do you think when you look at the adjustments that the Celtics have to make? I think they're kind of they're kind of sold out with this wall scheme that they're kind of trying to put up against Giannis. And because I don't really think that they have another way to do that. Are you going to put a more the, the Morris brother on an island on him? You know, probably not, because I mean, you saw it in game two, Andrew, when Giannis got the ball in the post and he kind of, you know, he started to back him down and even in transition, you could tell it was over. He was either going to get fouled or he was going to make the bucket. So, you know, how do you combat that? You know, if the Bucks are in transition, it's very hard to combat that because it's very hard to, you know, go back and formulate your defense in a short amount of time when, you know, the Bucks are moving it up the floor at, you know, as fast as possible. Um, so they have to kind of muck the game up and slow it down. It, I mean, I think, right? You know, it's it's interesting because obviously it takes a few defenders to really contain Giannis. But see, when you wall him off, then that's going to leave Eric Bledsoe open on the perimeter. Mm-hmm. And then he just makes one extra tiny pass to the corner, Chris Middleton for three. And, you know, if Chris Middleton is going to play like a flamethrower like he did last season against Boston. It's, it's not going to be looking too good for the Seas. I mean, the only chance that the Celtics have to – I'm not saying the only chance because, you know, they did it in game one and they shot really well. But is the only really big chance for the Celtics to win this series is if the Bucs just kind of shit the bed and just stop shooting well? Because you look at the, you know, game one as an outlier, and I don't really look at game two as an outlier. I think it's more indicative if – game two is of how they played this season combined. I mean, the Celtics consistently this year have had a big win and then failed to follow it up and had a huge dud. So you see that happen in the game two. And then the Bucks, they never lose two games in a row. 
and they go out there and they put up a, a 22 point showing for a team that's, you know, has 45 or whatever wins over double digits now, almost 50, I'm sure at this point, actually, if you count the playoffs. So, you know, is it which game is an outlier in, in your opinion? I thought game one, it was more of obviously the Bucks couldn't have played any worse, but I think that was the best Boston could have played. If that makes sense. And I think, the, and I really think the Bucks were like just sleeping, sleepwalking into that game. Um, those day games, man. Yeah. You're, I mean, it, you, very, it could be the day games. You're right. And you know, if it goes to seven or something, let's hope it's not a six. It's not, not a day game, but um, yeah, I think like, well, you know, they have Baines and they're moving him in there with Horford and, you know, they're trying to both protect the rim and like, you know, like you said, Giannis is getting, you know, hacked on pretty much every play. Yeah. And I, if Giannis is getting those calls and he's making his free throws, 13 of 18, it's, I expect a different, I'm sorry. I expect a different whistle in Boston. Like you said earlier in the pod, it's postseason. Refs are going to swallow their whistle. But, you know, Giannis is just such a hard player to officiate. You know, he just goes so mm-hmm. fast, those, those long, long strides. Looks like he's traveling every time. So it's just a completely different player. I don't know if we've ever seen a player like Giannis, how to officiate him. I just – I do not want to be an NBA referee refereeing a game that Giannis is playing in is all well, I'm saying. Well, it's hard because he, like, he plays like Shaquille O'Neal, but he moves like Kevin Durant. And his body looks like Kevin Durant. So, you know, Shaq wouldn't get a whistle because he's just so, like, he's so big and burly. And it's like, all right, well, if these guys are hitting his arm, it's really not affecting him that much. So, whatever. But, you know, Giannis is different because he's, I mean, he's obviously, like, he's gotten huge. He's lifted, so you know, he's whatever, 50 pounds of muscle. But he's more lanky. And I think that that's more, just more room for people to, you know, get hit at his arm. You know, it kind of sounds like a elementary reason why he gets fouled more, but his arms are just longer. There's just more area to hit if you're, you know, if you're going up and, you know, next thing you know, it's like Space Jam and his arms are stretching from half court damn near. It's nearly impossible to guard Giannis straight up one-on-one without fouling. It's just like you said, he's so long athletic those that reach and you know he just powers through contact so easily and that you know he really creates it if he i mean and now (laughs) folks if he starts hitting the three it's over it is a wrap he was the he's the best player in the nba if he can shoot threes like i mean even remotely better because you start to see Boston's defense react to it a little bit, just a little bit. You know they weren't run, they weren't leaving him out there. They're showing a hand now a little bit because what do you have? Three of five in game one, two of four in game two. Those are big possessions. All Giannis needs to do is he needs that defender to take one to two steps, you know, ahead of where that defender would be. And that's it. It's over. Giannis, that first step with that uh, long stride, it's scary. And if I, and like I said, I think I was talking to my friends uh, here at school and I said, if, you know, if Giannis can even get like 
you know how Russell Westbrook has that quick pull up. If he could develop something like that, because defenders are backing up at such a quick rate and they're backpedaling, try to stay in front of this guy and, you know, hopefully eventually take a charge or however the hell they try to, you know, stop him. But he, he if he can just pull up on that, it's no problem. And he's 24 years old. So there's plenty of time for him to do that. Well, He's my age, and I can tell you I'm certainly not contending to be one of the best players in basketball. So there you have it, folks. Or making a lot of money. <laughs> 25. Well, yeah, thanks for, thanks for rubbing that in. Well, you know, I'm in the same boat, too. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing like that here. There's nothing. I, I'm not growing, in, I'm not growing up to be like Giannis, unfortunately. Let me, let me hold a dollar, Giannis. Yeah, come on. I mean, so, it's for the culture. But, that is true. Let me let me get your game two prediction. Game three. Um, I think here's what I think. I think that unless the Celtics can get Jason Tatum more active, you know, active in what they're trying to do offensively, I don't think that they can win. Because I, you know, we talked about how is, you know, how is Giannis and how are the Bucks going to respond after getting that, you know, haymaker thrown at him, um, and they they threw they threw him back and it was bigger, it was more subst- it was more real than what the Celtics threw at them, um, you know. With that being said, though, the Celtics did win and they did get the split, and you know, the game was close in Game Two, you know, after halftime before they put that thirty-four to one run on them, but. It's uh, I'm gonna say Bucks. I'm gonna say Bucks. I don't really have a score for you. I think it's gonna be somewhere in between like eight, maybe like six to eight, somewhere in there. Yeah, I'm gonna go Bucks too. It's definitely gonna be a lot closer. The crowd is gonna be rocking on Friday for Game Three. Boston's gonna shoot. You gotta bank on Boston shooting a bit better than they did in Game Two. But you know, Boston did make ten threes in Game Two, which I think is a pretty decent amount. And they also went to the line twenty-seven times. They're a team that does not really get to the foul line but that's the problem if boston is getting to the foul line where game two they made 24 of 27 attempts and they're shooting a bit better than they did in game two we could be could be looking at a series deficit here but i'm going bucks you know like you said earlier in the pod they just don't lose to the same team twice unless they are playing the phoenix suns apparently <laughs> so i'm feeling pretty good going going into boston you lose home court advantage it's, it's not the end of the world this is a bucks team that's been running through the NBA, it's a uh, regular season. I think it's uh, I think this is going to be a really important Chris Middleton game. You know, I think Chris Middleton obviously had a huge game uh, yesterday. You know, last night, but that first road game I think is so important for Chris Middleton because he's such a you know he's so good against Boston, and you know they're going to be trying to slow that game down as much as they can limit transition for Giannis and Bledsoe, uh, you know, so they can get the shooters down there. So I think Chris Middleton may have to bail out some water at some point for them and kind of go ISO Chris for a couple possessions. So look for and see if Chris Middleton can do that um, and, you know, continue, you know, uh, drives to the basket and to, you know, force movement on the half court from Bledsoe. Cause when the Bucks get stagnant, you kind of saw what happened in game one. It's, it's not pretty. And one more thing. Do you think Malcolm Brogdon is going to be suited up for game three? Granted, he might not be 100% just yet. Yeah, I think I think game four 
would be obviously a higher probability. I think he could suit up. Um, you know, he they they sat Tony. They you know suited Tony Snell up. Obviously, much different players in terms of impact, but they suited Tony Snell up in games in game three. And you know, they were saying you know we're, we might see you know get him in in a couple rotations or something like that. But you know, this is a big series. And but Malcolm, if he feels like he's ready, um, you know more time is better because we saw last year, uh, you know, how he did in game seven with one of eight shooting against Boston. So getting him acclimated after an injury, I think is pretty important. Yeah, I agree with you too. But then you also have it. Are you going to mess up some chemistry, but these are all things to look out for very much anticipated game three. I'm Andrew Goodman. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew G underscore NBA. You can follow my man Dylan at DP double underscore hoops. And we'll get back to you guys after game three. Let's go three. Bam! Big time basketball player here. Let's go driving again. Eric Let's go with third.